Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. While we were watching a cartoon movie, a very moralistic cartoon movie, kind of movies where we tell our children that's the right movies you should watch because it is teaching about being good. We parents would feel like that's safe. I don't have to explain anything afterwards. It seemed to be a very safe movie. At the end of that movie, I was asking my children, what is the problem with the message? And the message was that he actually like died, I think, in his dreams, and he was brought to hell. And he was allowed to live again, but this time he realized he needs to do good works. He has to be good so that he will not go to hell, but go to heaven. So I asked them, what's the inconsistency of the message? Now, we are dealing with this kind of messages today. One, that you do not right away discern the problem. But still, there is a problem. It is a very moralistic message. And a moralistic message, one that says you can be saved through your good works, is a message that is an enemy of the gospel. That is not the gospel of Christ. And if we look at all these ideals that we are facing, these messages that we are facing, really, if you are serious in trying to keep the gospel, trying to keep the gospel, you will be forced to ask, how can we keep the gospel pure? How can we protect the gospel in the mind of our brothers and our sisters? It is a very important question. In fact, if you look at it, it is almost synonymous to the question, how can we keep the church? That's how crucial that question is. It is because the gospel, when the gospel is lost, everything is lost. If the church loses the true gospel, it loses the essence of a church. And when this happens, when the church is no longer upholding the pure gospel, the church becomes a mockery. There is no holiness in the church. Now, not only that in the church there are crazy things that churches are doing on Easter Sunday, their pastor was lowered down from the ceiling or from the roof of the building. Crazy things being done in the church, but I think what makes it really awful is not the entertainment per se, but the unholy lives of the people of God, of the so-called people of God. If this is what happens when the purity of the gospel is lost, How necessary is it that we do everything to keep the gospel? 
it is so necessary that we cannot be soft as far as Paul is concerned. We cannot be soft, but strongly yet lovingly command anyone who will introduce a different gospel to stop teaching whatever that teaching might be. Our title for this message is A Loving Charge. A Loving Charge. Why did Paul emotionally appeal to Timothy to remain in Ephesus when he surely would have wanted Timothy to go with him? I'm pretty sure of that. He would have wanted Timothy, his protege, to be with him. But he emotionally appealed to Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Paul is actually emotional when he urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus. You know, in those times that we are emotional, we are not so mindful of our words, don't we? We might not notice it, but actually Paul, when he said, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, there is actually no main command in it. Paul was just actually recalling an incident in the past where he was supposed to leave Ephesus going down to, T- to Macedonia, and he wanted Paul, Paul, Timothy to remain there, but at that press and at the right thing, there, there's no main command. Why did Paul forget to put a main verb on it? Or did he really forget? Now, my apology to read a long quote from my commentator, allow me to to quote him, if only I can bring out what we need to see. In verse 3, he said, what is important, so commenting that there's no verb, there's no main verb in that phrase, what is important is that an incomplete sentence in Greek has some rhetorical functions. Since it doesn't occur very often, and when it does, so it it means this is intentional from Paul. It is in a context where the the writer is deeply concerned with a problem and is writing about it in an extremely emotional state. One can imagine the concern of Paul about what was happening in the Christian community to which Timothy belonged. He was actually very emotional of what was happening in the church of Ephesus. If Paul was emotional in his appeal to Timothy, what was it that was on the mind of Paul? Since he wanted to, since he wanted, uh, sorry, since he wanted Timothy to keep certain people from teaching any teaching different from the gospel, what is really at stake, and this is what made Paul emotional, what was really at stake is the purity of the gospel. He was emotional when it comes to the gospel. Why was Paul so emotional about it? See, at the heart of Paul's theology, is a gospel lost. 
is a loss of everything. A gospel lost is a loss of everything. If you look at the progression of 1 Timothy, we will understand this. We understand that Paul started with the preservation of the gospel, chapter 1, the proclamation of the gospel, chapter 2, the protectors of the gospel, chapter 3, the prognosis of the work of the gospel, chapter 4, the protestation or the manifestation of the authenticity of the gospel, chapter 5, and the pursuit of the gospel, gospel-founded godliness, chapter 6. And so somehow in this series, you would already know the different mini-series that we will be making, the preservation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the protectors of the gospel, the protestation of the gospel, the pursuit of the pursuit of gospel-founded godliness. But Paul noticed that he started with the preservation. Because it is a clear message that if you lose the gospel, forget about the proclamation, forget about the protectors, forget about the prognosis, forget about the protestation and the pursuit, because they would mean nothing at all if you'd have the wrong gospel. So for something that Paul knew is more than life itself. Paul understood David very well, that the loving kindness of God is better than life. He could not help himself but be emotional. If only Timothy would stay and keep anyone from distorting the gospel. I have to repent when I look at that truth. The gospel that we often neglect, the gospel that we often look at as something normal and no longer special, Paul was so emotional every time you touch the gospel. Our passage today explains how important the preservation of the gospel is. It explains why we should keep anyone from teaching a different gospel, a different message, a different doctrine in the church. See, we can agree to disagree on some things. As far as infant baptism, we already told you we will not push this down your throat. If you want to believe in the future, whatever your stand on eschatology, we might not push that to you. We can agree to disagree. But there should be no disagreement when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, there is no democracy. Here's my big idea today. Keeping the gospel, keeping the gospel pure promotes not a false, but an authentic maturity. Thus, keeping anyone from distorting the gospel is a loving thing to do. The authentic maturity of the gospel or our authentic maturity depends upon the purity of our understanding of the gospel. There is a direct connection between how we are living today and how deep and how pure is our understanding of the gospel of Christ. We will have two points this morning. First, the need to charge. 
And then for easy recall, the second one is the need to love. The need to charge, the need to love. We both affirm that when someone, some of us, would have a wrong understanding and he gets to be so excited about what he understood that he will begin to tell everyone in the church about his new discovery. We will do two things. We need to charge, but we need to love too. And this we will be looking at this morning. First, the need to charge. Keeping the gospel pure promotes not a false, but an authentic maturity. That's what we desire. desire. We desire that in the church we have true, mature believers. We do not desire in the church where we can dress well, we can act well, we can seem to have a lot of understanding, but there is really no reality inwardly of our growth in Christ. That's not what we do. We want authentic maturity, but if authentic maturity happens, you need to keep the gospel pure. Paul knew what was at stake. Yes, the gospel, but also the maturity of the church. You know, if there is anyone who can discern a real maturity from a false one, how many times I have been deceived to to believe that this person is a mature Christian only to find out that this person is not. But if there's one who can discern it, discern a true knowledge of the gospel from that which does not have any roots from the scripture, one that is not a, not a result of the power of the gospel, but one who professes the gospel but denies its power, it would be Paul. And not only that he discerns false maturity, he knew the problem. He knew the root of immaturity. And for Paul, the root of immaturity is a problem with the understanding of the gospel. One who failed to forge or failed to form, failed to establish the right relationship between the law and the gospel. If the law becomes the way to salvation, that is not the gospel. But on the other hand, if the law or if the gospel, if you think the gospel frees us from obeying the law, that is not the gospel. Both are distortions of the gospel. The law brings us to Christ, the gospel, but Christ enables us to obey the law. That is the, that is the relationship between the law and the gospel. The law brings us to the gospel, and the gospel enables us to obey the law. But this is not the understanding of the people to whom Paul said to Timothy, charge these people. There was so much at stake to use a soft word. You know, when, when you know that there's a lot at stake, you're not soft. For this reason, Paul did not say to Timothy, ask them, 
Paul did not say to Timothy, plead to them or simply talk this certain persons out of their theology, you know, just convince them that their theology is wrong. No, that's not what Paul says. He said, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Charge. Well, everyone can charge anyone. We know that to understand this word charge is to put it in its proper context. And the proper context of the word charge is people of authority. We can think of a king giving orders. We can think of a commander giving his troops orders. That's where the word charge belongs. I don't know if I have ever used this word in normal conversations. Have you? Have you talked to anyone like having coffee in, in a Starbucks and you want that someone to do something for you and you say, I charge you? We don't use this normally. As far as I can remember, I only use this during formal occasions like the installation of Pastor Japheth in our church in Lipa. I have to say, I charge you because I am speaking from the authority of God. In fact, one commentator said that the best way to translate this, this one is this way. You must demand that they stop. You must demand that they stop. It is either they stop or they have to leave the church. There is no democracy in the word charge. Timothy was not asked to give them options. The only option given is to obey. Charge them. What was Paul thinking? Why such a word? Why sh shake the church with such use of authority? Is the church now incapable of dialogue? Are we on martial law, Paul? Well, Timothy not only has the power to use the word charge as it is embedded in the work of a pastor, but it is justified to use the word charge if the gospel and the very essence of the church are at stake. If the message entrusted by God to the church, the gospel, which, by the way, Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, as a treasure. If the gospel is at stake, and the testimony of the church, which Paul called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, as the jars of clay which holds the gospel. It is right to charge anyone to stop what they are doing, or else everything will be lost. So we as leaders should not hesitate to charge anyone if he or she is speaking anything contrary to the gospel. We find that one in scripture. Now, Paul was surely concerned of the gospel message itself. He was. But how else can he practically prove the danger of having a wrong theology, but to show its effect on their lives? If you look at speculations, the word speculations in verse 4 and the word stewardship in verse 4, Paul is like, 
differentiating between a fake maturity and an authentic maturity, which I will discuss later. But first, let us settle the question. What is the different doctrine? Paul said, charge these persons not to teach any different or a different doctrine. What was the different doctrine? Well, to be honest, to pinpoint the wrong doctrine is as hard as pinpointing who these persons were. Paul just said certain persons in verse 3. He would again said in verse 6, certain persons. And then in verse 19, he used the word some, which actually does not help. What are the meats? No one can be certain. What are the endless genealogy? No one can be certain. It could be the Jewish genealogy, which we know that genealogy, among Jews, they were so proud of it. Paul himself have to, have to said when he said, do you want us to be boasting here? I am from the tribe of Benjamin. It's important to them. However, when you look at the Gnostics, the Gnostics also use the word genealogy because while they, well, they believe that there are real gods, they believe that there are demigods, and then they will trace their line through that demigod. Therefore, no one can be certain, and it's, it's understandable. Talk to me after the service and said, can you still remember what happened last week? I'll probably say, what happened? If you could not even remember what happened last week, certainly you could not remember or you cannot paint what happened less than 2,000, a little less than 2,000 years ago. However, I agree with those who said that the important thing here is not what were the specific things that Paul referred to here, but that he is emphasizing that there is no truth in these things. Listen carefully. Isn't that what myth is? Isn't it what endless or long genealogies, like Silolo and Dolo and Dolo and Lolo, you never stopped? Isn't it the reason why Paul called this speculations? And if you look at verse 6, Paul said he called this vain discussion, a myth, endless genealogy, speculations, and vain discussions, useless discussion. That's, now that's clear. He was trying to let us see that all this false teaching, there is no truth in these things because the truth is the gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Elsewhere, when the Colossians were tempted to study the philosophies of their time, he's, Paul said to them that in Christ are hidden all treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. And Paul proved or tried to prove to them the long, their wrong use of the law by pointing to them that what they're teaching is not in accordance to the blessed or to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in verse 11. So it is now obvious, it is now obvious that Paul is implying that these meats, 
These endless genealogies are empty because there is no truth in them as far as salvation is concerned because all truths are in the gospel of Christ. Everything that runs conscious to the gospel is a myth. Everything that runs conscious to the gospel are endless genealogy. Everything that runs conscious to the gospel are endless nonsense. They are speculations and they are useless discussion. They would never bring anyone closer to God. There is no reality in them because all reality is in the gospel of Christ. Thus, thus, because there is no truth in them, however palatable these messages are, to tell you, no, don't believe the lies that you are not good. You are good and just, just tell yourself you're good. Just to make you feel good. You can feel good all you want and go to hell after. Because there's nothing in them. There's no power in them. There's no truth in them. The best that they can produce is a fictitious, untrue, false, fake Maturity as opposed to authentic maturity. Paul said that this meets an endless genealogy. He said they promote speculations rather than stewardship that is by faith. Speculations. Clearly, stewardship is supposed to be the right outcome. But instead, their teaching produced Speculations. It's like saying that their knowledge only made them trust in their own wisdom instead of humbly embracing the gospel and obeying the Lord Jesus. This is the same thing why Paul said, I, for I determined to know nothing but to preach Christ and him crucified. Because in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. See the fundamental difference between speculation and stewardship is the ability to know the value of something. That's a fundamental. Stewards understand if I, if I entrust to you something and you know that what I've entrusted to you is valuable, you would guard it with your life. But whatever, whatever, however valuable is that thing, give it to kids. However precious the diamond, give it to your two-year-old child. Goodbye, diamond. Because it does not know the value. People who have matured they shifted to figuring out things, to being faithful to what he has. When Paul said here stewardship, he means stewardship of the gospel. In contrast, speculations have no basis at all. Have you ever speculated? I think. It does not know the truth. It has nothing to protect. 
It is not only open to conversations, but baseless conversations. It has no basis. It does not know the truth. It could be an endless discussion indeed. It's still looking for the truth. Still looking for the truth. Instead of knowing the truth and being faithful to keep the truth. That's right, because the gospel is an established truth. It is an established truth. Any speculations are enemies of the gospel. I'm sure we might not think about this much, but there are liberal theologians out there who keep on insisting that you know, you're not just supposed to focus on the historic Catholic faith. When we say historic Catholic faith, the belief what the apostles understood was passed to the early church fathers, and it was passed down the line so that what Paul believed, think about that, what Paul believed, what John the Beloved believed, what Polycarp believed, what Augustine believed, what Luther believed, what John Huss believed, what Calvin believed, what they all believed as the gospel is still the same gospel that we believe today. So for liberal theologians who says, ah, that's being naive, outdated, you're ancient. They are not acting as stewards. They are still continuing to speculate. We can liken this or those who end up with speculations rather than stewardship, like the one who loves to talk about theology. But none of his theology is grounded in the scripture. There is no ground whatsoever. They are probably a product of his own imagination or anywhere else, but not the faithful interpretation of the scripture. People like that is like a child who is tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Kung ano yung fad? What is the new thing? What is the in thing? What is it that people love today? What will tickle their ears? If that is the in thing, then let me have that one. And it is because they still did not discern the truth. Or they could not discern the truth. They could not be entrusted with something as valuable as the gospel of Christ. See? In other words, he claimed that he is mature because of everything that he knows when at the end of the day, he is really immature. And see, the problem with these people is that this is that they would claim to be mature because of everything that they know. They're proud to think about it when at the end of the day, they are actually manifesting what an immature person is. And you know, when there is a false teaching, it is not a misinterpretation. We, we do misinterpretation. Like, I think you missed that, Pastor. I can misinterpret. Anyone can misinterpret. What we're talking about here is a body of knowledge, systematized teaching. Paul used the word doctrine. Charge these persons not to teach any different or not to teach 
a different doctrine. A doctrine is a systematized body of knowledge already. It's not like what, it's not like what is your interpretation of this verse. The question is, what is your teaching? You know, when you put all these things that you know, what are you trying to teach? It's a systematized body of knowledge. Today, when you think about prosperity gospel, it's not a misinterpretation of one passage. It is a body of knowledge. It's a theology. And crazy because I was watching this debate. I think it was Jeff Durban. And he was debating with the theologian of the LGBT community. A, a church which believed that God created not only two genders, but whatever genders. And I realized they are sophisticated with their argument. And even if you push to their face that, no, that's the plain interpretation of Scripture, they have a way of circling around, they would, always tell, they would always tell you, you do not understand the context at the time. You are using the word homosexual in the way you understand that today, but that's not what Paul meant at the time. It's a systematized body of knowledge which tells us they are already passionate for it. This week I saw a picture of a pastor which we still respect, for sure. But all smiles on a picture with someone which is an, who is an open heretic. For people like this, it's not smile. Charge these people. It is a very dangerous thing. You cannot just take it lightly. You cannot just smile at them. We are not friends with everyone who distorts the gospel. We're primarily, we're not here to make friends. We want friends. We love friends. But we are primarily here to keep the gospel. Because our lives the lives of our children, the lives of our grandchildren are at stake. And the worst things, according to Paul, the worst thing that would happen if we keep on allowing this teaching is our faith might be destroyed eventually, not just impede our growth, might even destroy our faith completely. You know what Paul, which I believe when he said certain persons in verse 3, certain persons in verse 6, he also mean one and the same people when he said in verse 19, some. And read with me 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. This is what Paul said. By rejecting this, meaning the faith, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them, or among whom, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Nah, we ask, what could possibly happen? 
What could possibly happen is this. Your faith will be destroyed. We will be naive to think that it is okay to entertain false teaching. A believer told me, a good believer said, I know the gospel and I know that Joel Austin does not preach the true gospel. But you know what? I love to listen to Joel Austin just to learn how to speak well. I would rather have you listen to that simple pastor who cannot put his grammar well like you are towards me so long as that pastor is preaching the right gospel. It's not about being a good speaker. Listen. Listening to false teaching could destroy your faith if you won't stop. The adage, the adage that says, eat the meat and throw the bones, the problem with that is if you are not discerning, you throw the meat and you eat the bones. It's true probably for the discerning, but for most of us, it would rather, I would rather have you listen to Steve Lawson. I would rather have you listen to John MacArthur, I would rather have you listen to John Piper and all the Johns out there. I would rather have you listen to Kevin DeYoung. I would rather have you listen to Ligon Duncan. I would rather have you listen over and over again to the dead R.C. Sproul. Because you're safe. False teaching would not result in authentic maturity. We do not want to end up speculating. We want to end up stewarding. We know the truth of the gospel, and we want to guard it from anyone who wants to distort it. This is the true mature person. Do you understand the gospel? Do you have a clear understanding of the gospel? What is it to guard if you do not even know the gospel? Authentic maturity is stewardship done by faith. And I know stewardship itself is already a maturity, but Paul said you have to do it by faith. That's so mature. You are stewarding the gospel, but you're not relying on your own strength. I think you agree with me that Paul is clearly trying to picture a person who is that mature. Paul wanted Timothy to charge these persons not to teach any different doctrine because he desired that believers will mature. There is a need to charge, isn't it? And not simply tolerate, not simply be gentle, not simply to coexist. There is a room to charge. There is much at stake that admonition, exhortation, encouragement no longer work. We need to charge. Seeing your children doing something wrong and not doing anything about it is like looking 
at the sandcastle slowly being eaten up by the waves. Now we know it is okay when the sand ca- with the sandcastle, but not with our children. Our, two, our children are too valuable that we cannot watch them being destroyed like a wave destroying a sandcastle. The gospel and the church are too valuable to watch people destroying it and not doing anything. There is a room for a strong use of authority in the church in the matters of doctrine. There is a room for a strong use of authority in the church in matters of doctrine. Now, leaders should be very gracious. I hope that our leaders have been very gracious. But I also hope that our leaders will be like a mother dog who grows when someone is coming towards her children. I hope we have leaders who grows like a mother dog when he smells, when they smell false teaching coming. I once said to one of us, I don't know, if I smell small false teaching, I lost all graciousness. I think it is a supernatural, because it is of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural, natural reaction for every believer who loves the gospel. Let's go to the second one, and this would be quick. The need to love. The need to charge. And then the need to love. Keeping anyone from distorting the gospel is a loving thing to do. Paul said in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a, heart, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So being man-centered is not only a problem in our time. Being a fearful of man is not only a problem of our time. It is a problem of the human heart. Obviously, Paul anticipated some in the church If Timothy would charge certain persons to stop what they are teaching, he anticipated that some in the church would accuse Timothy of being unloving. You're so unloving, harsh, narrow-minded, intolerant, bigot. You You should have been more gentle. At least they are in the church. Now that you're so strong, see, they left. But on the contrary, Paul wanted Timothy to understand that this is out of pure love. What people accused us of unloving, this is actually loving. Now the charge clearly speaks of demanding those who are teaching a different doctrine. And the purpose of doing the charge is love. And that love there, you're right, that's not your friendly love. That's your agape love. That's your sacrificial love. And realize, where is the love there? Well, to be able to confront the, pe- the people who are teaching a false gospel would mean you will be the one who would be hated. If, if you're a person who just, you make it your aim in life that I would be liked by everyone, 
This is not for us. Everyone who tried to confront someone knows that you only you can only do it if you have a genuine concern for the good of the person. If you have a genuine concern. The thing about genuine concern or love for others is that while others might not understand that you're coming from love, Paul, along with Timothy, knew with utmost certainty of their pure motive. As any one of us, when we are frank, when we are confronting a person of a sin, you know that we can only confront a person if we really have their good in mind. Paul said here, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart is clear. It's a pure motive. Out of which, out of the pure heart, is a good conscience, which means when you do that, there's no guilt in me, in the Aponapoponsentia or anything. There's no guilt because I know that I'm coming from a pure motive. And sincere faith speaks of your confidence in the truth. That you know very well that you are just speaking the truth to them. In other words, or yes, you can look at it in different angles, but you understand that Paul only had one purpose. To prove that they only think of the good of these people in the church. And that's why they have to charge. He wanted to prove that the aim of their charge is love. So Paul was certain that they have no other motive. Have you ever tried confronting anyone? It's hard. I was asked by the women last week, Pastor, what do you do when you're about to confront a person? Now, I was also asked by a pastor, a fellow pastor, not from our church, who asked me, Pastor, my problem is that I'm not a confrontational pastor. And I'm really having a hard time confronting. And I told him, But I draw my strength when after I search my heart and examine my heart, I have a genuine concern for the person. And when I approach that person coming from a genuine understanding of my purpose, that I'm just trying to save him from something bad, or I'm just trying to do what is good for him, then who would not want to do what is good? This is what Paul says here to Timothy. And Paul said this to Timothy because we know that Timothy was a timid person. Second Timothy 1.7. And Paul, as a veteran apostle, he knew the key to be able to charge. And he was telling Timothy, Timothy, you don't have to be apologetic. You do not have to think twice if you know that the aim of your charge is love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is to persuade Timothy to realize that what he was about to do is actually right and loving. 
right? When you know that what you are about to do is right and loving, it's still hard, but somehow you will find the right strength to do it. What will liberate us to charge anyone to stop sharing anything contrary to the gospel is having only the motive of love. Pero mahirap yun kapag ka you will approach the person because sa totoo lang, naiinis ka rin. You know? But we need to check is motive. Is our motive. It's, it's no longer a question of should I, does the Lord want me to approach this person? Does the Lord want me to confront this person who's teaching a wrong gospel? You don't have to pray for it. What you need to pray is a pure motive. What you need to pray is to examine your heart so that when you have pure love, then you can do that. You can approach the person. By the way, let me just sidebar a little bit that this is not only applicable to confronting someone who's spreading a false doctrine. This is also confronting those who offended us. <clears throat> We were talking with this with the women last week, and I said, the one who is offended should be the one to approach. And one of us said to me, Pastor, then we will approach to you. I will approach you one by one after your sermon. Because you heard all of us. But we need to learn that. We're back to our big idea. Keeping the gospel pure promotes not a false, but an authentic maturity. Thus keeping the gospel from distorting, or just keeping people from distorting the gospel is a loving thing to do. We have to keep anyone from teaching a different gospel. And here are Quick applications. We should lovingly confront anyone who teaches a different gospel. Lovingly confront. And I hope that as leaders, you will see our progress in this area. That we, we will not see any, someone who's teaching a wrong doctrine, but we cannot speak the truth to him. But on the other hand, we want you to see, to, to see us that yes, we confronted but you know it was motivated by love. We need to be able to speak the truth in love. One of the best compliments I have ever received as a pastor is when after I rebuked one of us, maybe the strongest rebuke I have ever made, he said to me, you know what, pastor? I did not feel hatred. I felt love. That could be the best compliments I could ever have. One of the best compliments I could ever have as a pastor. <clears throat> Hold your elders accountable to that. But it is not just for elders. As I have said, it is also for you. You cannot simply be a snitch. You know what the snitch? You see something, but you will not con confront that person do not even know, and then you'll snitch that person to your pastor. Do you know, pastor, that one? 
because you want to get out of the picture and say, now that's your problem, Pastor, not mine. And we want all of us to learn how to speak the truth in love because you do not want your pastors, your leaders to die early. There are levels of confrontations, and I'm pretty sure that there are level that there are confrontations on your level. And I'm not offended when you say, Pastor, we just fix it on ourselves. No, that's supposed to be what you do, what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to bring everything to us. Unless, of course, the matter is escalating. Isn't that the principle that we find in Matthew 18, 15 to 18, that you start with the personal level than with some people in the church before we bring it to the leaders in the church and to the church after. Let us take time to pray, to see our motive, and ask wisdom from God as to how we can confront lovingly. So we need to learn how to lovingly confront. Secondly, we should trustfully yield. What we want to happen is not simply the work of confrontation. Our goal is love. Matthew 18.15 says, the goal is to win your brother. We want him to turn from that false teaching. We want him to turn from that sin. We want him to repent. Therefore, if we happen to be the ones being confronted, if we are the ones who are being confronted, don't react right away. Don't walk out. Pastor Jess and I, we confronted a, a member in the previous church. And while we were talking, the person was so silent until at one point he said, Ito, ilalabas ko na. So, natakot kami ni Pastor yun, ilalabas niya. Sabi niya, Ito, ilalabas ko na. And we're waiting kung anong ilalabas niya. Ang ilalabas niya, kinuha niya yung bag niya. Sabi niya, Ito na, ilalabas ko na. Ito na yung pride ko. And then he walked out. Hindi <laughs> ko alam kung magagalit ka o matatawa ka eh, kasi no, no, don't react right away. If, if you, I know it's painful when someone comes to us and confronted us. I know it's painful. And I know how tempting it is to react right away. But maybe you can just stop. If you cannot control yourself, just hold yourself. Ask your elders. Pray for me. And we will pray together with you. But process your heart before God. And I hope that the Lord in His grace will show you the problem. And when God shows you your problem. Humbly yield. Repentance is for us, not against us. And I can assure you with pure motive and pure heart, with good conscience and sincere faith, that when we approach someone, it is about, it is from love. It's okay to own up our sins rather than destroy our faith. So wrong teaching threatens the purity of the gospel and the maturity of the church. If we truly love the gospel and the church, we cannot take it lightly, but courageously demand anyone to stop teaching a wrong doc doctrine and may even have to ask him to leave the church if unyielding. 
so much is at stake. The purity of the gospel and your maturity and my maturity. We have to lovingly charge. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church Podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.